I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. I am continuing my bloodless revolution having deposed Alex and Alina and we will be talking (laughs) about votes, but we're not. (laughs) Uh, Alex is here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. When in reality, I'm terrified of Alex and Alina, so I am here to do their bidding like their willing little bitch, as usual, is what you're saying, right? Yeah, pretty much. Every day. <laughs> way. <laughs> oh, but this is brilliant because it's like we've already been on the call about 20 minutes just being ridiculous because family's in the house, isn't it, Chris? Yeah, we have historian, YouTuber, writer, Renaissance man, friend of History the channel. History hack Jesus. History <laughs> hack Jesus. The wonderful Josh Probin. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm somewhat overwhelmed by the the growing introduction that I'm getting here. And uh, yeah. thank you, the Alex. The longer your ponytail gets, the longer your introduction gets. <laughs> noted, noted. I will keep you all updated with the measurements. Yes, and we've decided at a certain length it's getting its own Twitter account as well. But there'll be no one left on Twitter by then, so it'll be yes. Noted. If you can figure out Mastodon, put your ponytail on there instead. I couldn't. It baffled the shit out of me. I don't care about Mastodon. I I don't want to care about it. (laughs) (laughs) I have actually, and who knows when this will air, uh, but I have actually done a a history social media app, which is going through publishing at the moment. And and it's brilliant because it's basically Twitter for history, but with a book buying page. So it's the path to ruin for all of us. Looking forward to it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, right. Josh, you have uh, the reason you keep getting back on is because you keep bringing us bits of history that we otherwise ignore or have no idea even happened. So, what are you here for? Uh, well, you see, I I got drunk, and uh, no, I mean, um, no, I'm here to I'm here deliberately because in the future I want to sell books. No, uh, sorry, again, I'll be serious. We're talking about Spain and the American Revolution today. Sort of just sort of cruising in on the back of Chris's bloodless revolution joke. We're actually going to talk about revolutions today, I hope. So this is, we obviously know that the French are hanging around like a fart in a lift during the American Revolution and being problematic as far as Britain is concerned. Um, I had no idea Spain was there as well, but actually it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? It makes total sense because most of the Spanish Empire was in America. Um, But uh, they get completely ignored because... France gets all the attention. They show up like Pepe Le Pew uh, with a tricon hat on and um, steal the limelight and all the applause. And Spain is Spain is nowhere on the nowhere on the on the show bill. So talk to us then. Like, let's seriously the motivation for Spain. Their empire, as you say, is the Americas. Is it mainly South America? But Florida is Spanish, isn't it? Um, at the second, actually, uh, Florida is run by the accursed British. Uh, okay. You know, those annoying guys who just rock up and pinch bits. Because of the Seven Years' War, they won um, the the Floridas because there was two of them at the time just for ease and, you know, complete normal reasons. Um, East and West Florida belonged to, British because, to the British because they had won them in the Seven Years' War. And... Uh, but yes, Spain did run most of uh, North America, Central America, all of Central America, and most of South America that wasn't Brazilian. Um, but the reason why some of it's Brazilian and some of it's Spanish is a completely another episode. But um, the motivation, therefore, ties into that whole thing about the British owning Florida. Um, they had very spe- specific strategic goals, um, and these were kind of 
maritime in nature, pretty much. Um, this being to restore Spanish control over the Gulf of Mexico, um, the Caribbean basin, the mouth of the Mediterranean. And that specifically means Gibraltar, Jamaica, and, and West Florida. West Florida, it, it was the name for the line of coast that runs from the mouth of the Mississippi down to the bottom of Florida. And it included Alabama, bits of Georgia, um, what is now Mississippi. You know, the name West Florida has no relevance whatsoever to what Florida is today. Um, but that was what the, the Spanish wanted. There were also some illegal um, trading activities going on down in the southern part of the Gulf of Mexico in Campeche, or Campeche, I don't actually know how you pronounce that. Um, and they wanted them gone as well. So that is sort of the motivation here. They want to reclaim territory that's been lost to them over the course of the 18th century, specifically Gibraltar and Jamaica. Um, but they want to do it on their own terms. There is a big grudge here at play, definitely, just like with the French. Um, and the king of Spain at the second, Carlos III, is very much... Uh, a reforming king and he wants to restore the Spanish empire to what it was. And he depends on talented people like the Conde de Florida Blanca, who is scheming up clever thing, clever, clever, clever ways to, to enter the war in a way that will benefit Spain the most. As we know from all kinds of diplomacy, neutral countries always want to get the best deal for themselves. So was it always going to, whether, whether chips, it's always going to land with the uh, Spanish coming on in on the side of the evil revolutionaries and French, or was there any point where they'd actually come in on the righteous side of uh, King George the Third? Uh, oh, I'm biased or anything. <laughs> oh, really? I, 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 I was detecting some subtle preferences there, but I would never have guessed. Well, um, you go to Wallace School. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, no, there was no chance of the Spanish joining the British side at all, I don't think. However, there was a chance that the Spanish might not enter the war uh, on the side of the French. Uh, the French and the Spanish, over the course of their you know, life as neighbours, had, um, and especially since the Bourbon succession to the uh, Spanish throne in, uh, after the War of the Spanish Succession, uh, they had had these things called the Bourbon Family Compacts, which were special treaties, usually of a military nature, between the kings of France and Spain, that basically it was agreement to help them out in wartime, help each other out in wartime. And this was going to come into play when the French joined in the war against the British. The French did so, uh, but they did so because they had sort of a tacit promise that the Spanish would also join them. They didn't really want to get involved if the Spanish didn't come in as well. And so the French were constantly badgering the Spanish. Uh, oh, when are you going to join in? When are you going to join in? And the Spanish, meanwhile, uh, are sitting back and saying, um, yeah, we're, we're coming. We're coming. Uh, you know, uh, I think I think. Uh, there's a there's a there's a word in Spanish something like andel llegando, which is like I'll, I'm getting I'll get there when I get there, and um, they because they were in this wonderful position of being like the pretty kid at a school dance, and everybody wanted to 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 dance with them, and they get to choose who they dance with. Now, like I said, the Spanish wanted Gibraltar back. They wanted Jamaica back and they wanted most of uh, Florida back as well. And so they went to the British and said, hey, guys, um, you know, the French are fighting you and uh, and they, they're helping out your American allies here. Um, they want us to join in, too. So what would you give us if... Um, if, if we were to say not to join in, I mean, you've got any pieces of territory lying around that you might, just might want to give us? And the British said, no, we don't. <laughs> Bring it on. <laughs> um, that's, the, that's the long and short of it. There was, there was a brief point, actually, 
where the British seemed to be kind of considering tossing them Gibraltar. They sort of dangled it for a while. And then uh, it, then George III just sort of vetoed the idea because he thought it was absurd and he was not going to give up his precious rock uh, just to save America. And so with that in mind, the Spanish had been keeping a very close eye on the war in America. They had sent spies out almost as soon as the first shots had been fired. Uh, letters had gone out to the provincial governors, again, almost as soon as the fighting started, saying, do please give a lot of gold and munitions and muskets and stuff and uniforms. Send that up the Mississippi to the Americans. Just don't let the British know you're doing it. And um, at this point, around 1778, when it became clear that they weren't going to be able to get any concessions out of Britain by not joining in, the time came to actually join in. And so in a weird way, in hindsight, it can reasonably be said that the decision was, from the British point of view, to, to sacrifice America for Gibraltar. I need to ask you... With the worst pronunciation in the world as someone who got an E for GCSE Spanish and can basically order a drink and nothing else. Tell us who Don Bernardo de Galvez was and what are his aims? Well, um, Bernardo de Galvez is uh, one of my favourite people in history at the second. Um, that's why I made the T-shirts about him. Uh because you know you don't make t-shirts about people you don't really care about unless it's some sort of weird irony i guess but um yeah i did that so i'm a fan he uh is the governor of louisiana louisiana being a formerly a in its long and convoluted history of changing hands louisiana was french the french passed it under the table to the spanish during the peace negotiations uh, at the end of the Seven Years' War, to make sure that the British didn't get it. And the Spanish have been running it uh, for quite a while now. Since, yes, since 1763, 64. And the newest governor of Louisiana is Bernardo, Bernardo de Galvez. And he is the, this, this sort of last of the Mohicans kind of figure who is I mean I like to say that he's I like to say that he's not Spanish he comes from Andalusia which means that he he thinks a little differently to how a lot of other people in Spain think he's quite famous for being quite uh liberal in the terms of how he treats sort of the the melting pot of people that he's running in Louisiana uh, and I like to think that that's because of the fact that he came from Andalusia. Um, and he was a professional career soldier before he became governor. He had a well connect he was a well-connected man. He came from a family of statesmen. His uncle was on the Council of the Indies, and his father was the governor of Guatemala. And but despite that, he had sort of reached a point in his career around uh, 1777 where he had done a lot of fighting, been wounded quite, he'd been wounded at least three times, um, was known as a bit of a firebrand and people weren't, I don't think he was, I don't think his family were really sure what was going to become of him exactly until they got him on the staff of uh, Alejandro O'Reilly, who was the acting governor of Louisiana, who was sent in there to quell a a Creole uprising. And he brought Bernardo with him as the commander-in-chief of his troops, and eventually Bernardo Bernie, if you like. Um, he, he took over in Louisiana, right at the point that the American Revolution was kicking off in a big way. And he was in charge of ferrying all that all that good stuff up to George Washington and trying to make it look like he was completely neutral to the British. Um, and he did a very good job of that. Uh, and while he was doing that, he was constantly planning how to start the war off that he th- that he thought was inevitable. So he is a, he's a fascinating guy and 
as I've said before, he if if he if it if he wasn't, I mean, his life is almost embarrassing to talk about because it doesn't sound like it's real. He did a he his life is ridiculously dramatic, and sometimes I question whether half of the stuff that he achieved uh, actually happened. But his his portrait is, is in the Capitol building of the United States for a, for a particular series of reasons, which we're going to talk about today. And he he should be better he should be better known in American history, I think. But I could just I could do an entire episode about Bernardo de Galvez. I'm going to stop now. Well, yeah, I mean, um, which leads us nicely to the next question of he actually leads a campaign from New Orleans. How successful was it? I mean, I, I think I know where this is going, but yeah, <laughs> um, it was it was it was it was very successful, stunningly successful, actually. Um, de Galvez, like I say, had been planning for this moment since practically he became governor. Uh, the declaration of war, which uh, was, uh, which was sort of rumored, uh, it, rumors of it had sort of circulated in 1778. Spanish government sent out word ahead of time that they were going to declare war, so every governor in America in the Americas could get a head start on on what was going on. And de Galvez had been trying to get people on his side for the coming war. As I said, he was he was governor of Louisiana. Louisiana was formerly French. There was suspicion as to whether the colony would be completely on the side of the Spanish. That was a slight concern. Uh, there was also the concern that the British might strike first once the declaration of war was known. In fact, there were plans, uh, various plans, uh, on the British side to send troops down the Mississippi to take New Orleans or take the, uh, I think there was a two pronged attack planned from once from Pensacola and one from Canada for some reason um, to, to take New Orleans. And Galvez was absolutely basically Galvez said uh, that if he did not go and attack the British, they would come and attack him. So he had got together everybody uh, and had a council of war before the declaration of war had been sent to New Orleans. And he sussed out who he could trust and who he could get on his side and who he could put on his staff. And having sussed all that, he started gathering supplies in secret for a like an immediate strike as soon as he learned that it was official. And he was hoping basically to take advantage of, of the fact that the British would not know as quickly as he did that war had broken out. There was a massive hurricane in 1779, which destroyed about 40 miles in either direction around New Orleans and sank most of his boats and destroyed most of his supplies, uh, which put a bit of a damper on the operation. But de Galvez had this kind of irrepressible optimism and grit, I guess, uh, to do whatever he set out to do. So he basically just went to his quartermaster and said, um, I see that there's been some storm damage. Um, I don't suppose you could just sort of fix it while I make every, while I calm the colony and we'll go a little later. And indeed he did. Uh, he then marched at, he, they, they gathered together everything that they could. Uh, they refloated boats and they marched up to Baton Rouge and showed up right in front of the fortifications, at which point Galvez kindly told his soldiers that they were in, in fact at war and they had marched up here to attack the British. And they took, uh, they took Baton Rouge and uh, Natchez uh, within a few, within, within about a week. Uh, this is famously called the Marcha de Galvez uh, because uh, it was uh, this really impressive march through swamps and unpaved, you know, there were no roads where he was going practically and he had to float his artillery out bayous and things like that. Um, and then he just showed up and overwhelmed, 
overwhelmed the British up there. And that was the first that the British actually did hear of of the declaration of war was when they heard that de Galvez had taken taken Baton Rouge. So then he comes back to New Orleans, gets some more reinforcements. And the next, and in 1780, early 1780, he goes for Mobile. Again, bad weather hits. And he ends up shipwrecked with most of his army on uh, a sand spit on uh, just outside uh, Mobile Bar. And... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. He's only sort of sustained by a, a rice convoy that comes in from Havana. But because the British don't take advantage of this fact, he just shrugs and says, well, all right, if you haven't come and destroyed me, uh, I'll come and attack you then. Come on, boys, pick up your bags. Uh, and they, indeed, they go and march off and they surround Fort Charlotte. This like bunch of uh, half-naked, half-drowned Spaniards show up in front of Mobile and order, order it to surrender. Um, and unsurprisingly, uh, Colonel Danford commander of the fort at Mobile said no. Uh, so he, uh, Galvez thinks up this, this cunning ruse to take it, which is to send some militia to go and start chopping down trees at a particular point on one side of the fort uh, to draw the fire of the garrison. And while they're doing that and making a lot of noise, during the night, he shifts a bunch of cannons and engineers and infantry around to the complete opposite side of the fort and builds a battery there, which the British are very surprised to see the next morning. And they are forced to surrender after it opens fire. Um, this, dis- this was also a, a real kind of down-to-the-line operation because the governor, so the commander-in-chief of Pensacola, the capital of West Florida, had cobbled together about um, 1,500 men and had marched to try and relieve Mobile. It's not very far, really, to march from Pensacola to Mobile. Uh, But in those days, again, very bad roads, lots of swamps, lots of forests, uh, tons of rivers. And basically, poor poor General Campbell arrived just in time to see the colours come down uh, uh, on the fort, and they had to march back. And so this, in between 1779 and 1780, Galvez takes the majority of West Florida. He secures the entire Mississippi for the Spanish and most of the Gulf Coast. And this is a tremendous blow to the British in the South uh, that they weren't prepared for. And obviously, basically killed dead any chance of the British attacking New Orleans. His um his masterstroke though of the entire campaign is the uh, is the siege of Pensacola. What happened there? Well, the, the siege of Pensacola is going to be the direct subject of the book I'm writing right now. So I don't want to give away too many spoilers in case you want me to come back and talk specifically about the siege once the book is done. But I'll give you so. But I can say, I can tell you that um it was it was the longest siege on. North American soil of the American Revolution. It lasted from uh, March of 1781 to uh, early May of the same year. Uh, It included around 7,000, by the end, uh, Spanish troops, 
which and French troops, I should say, uh, and uh, the combined fleets thereof. Uh, it was a nightmare to plan because the governor general of Cuba, uh, Jose de Navarro, didn't want any operations going into Pensacola. He wanted to protect Cuba and Havana. And I think he probably wanted to also direct energies towards Jamaica rather than mainland America, to be honest. And in hindsight, he probably wasn't wrong, but we'll get to that later. Um, but Galvez and the, the king and, you know, Galvez is very powerful uncle and uh, the, the king's commissioner who was sent out to stop people arguing about where to attack, um, whose name is... Uh, I've forgotten his first name, but his name is Don Saavedra. And he, they all basically say, you know, Galvez is on a hot streak right now. Let him run at Pensacola. And they do. General Campbell puts up a good fight. Obviously, he lasts about, lasts about three months. He has about a thousand men in Pensacola. And had he had maritime support, which he did not, he might have been able to actually hold the place except for a, a twist of fate that allowed the Spanish to immediately force his surrender. And we don't care about spoilers because it's history, because people will Google it if they want to know. Basically, um, the last day of the siege of Pensacola was the day when a shell ha- bounced merrily into the powder magazine of the main redoubt and blew it sky high. The Spanish had the presence of mind to immediately rush the ruined fortifications and drag cannons up there to make sure that it was not retaken. And once that happened, General Campbell was forced to surrender. He was also, I should say, aided in his defense by about four to 500 uh, Muscogee warriors, better known as Creek warriors. And more than anything, when you read the accounts of the siege, the Spanish are much more worried about these hordes of Indians than the British. And they are a major reason why the siege takes so long to prosecute. Bottom line, Pensacola falls. And that means pretty much all of West Florida goes. And the expectation is that they're going to go over to St. Augustine on the, on the Atlantic coast and take that too. Um, but the British in the far south are now completely at a loss as to where the Spanish will strike next. And this does have some bearing on the siege of Yorktown as well, uh, because now a lot of French ships and Spanish ships and men and munitions are now poised to do a lot of bad stuff that, that the British are kind of worried about. So that's the siege of Pensacola. Uh, another great story from it is... Right at the beginning, when when Galvez actually is, and I'll tell you this because it's just a good story. Uh, I, I should have told you it at the beginning, and it's a big part of who de Galvez is. Um, he didn't get on with the fleet commander. You know, not nobody in this room is going to be surprised to hear that the army and the navy don't get on. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, but he what, didn't get on with the fleet commander, and. Partially, this was because the fleet commander couldn't get his biggest ship over the over the Pensacola, over Pensacola Bar into to enter the main harbor. It's kind of a tricky place to get into. There's a very long sort of sandbar called Santa Rosa Island that protects most of the bay, and there's just a sort of a narrow passage in between the island and the mainland, which is guarded by a a fort. And so for these reasons, uh, they didn't want, the Spanish Navy didn't want to risk their ships going in over this, getting stuck and then getting blown to pieces. Now, de Galvez being de Galvez basically said, well, I got my personal ship here. That got over fine. And the British didn't just shot a few holes in her, um, in her sails. So why are you being chickens? Um, and it got to a point where he got so frustrated that, this, that the Navy weren't doing what he wanted them to do 
And he was so worried that the British were going to send a massive amphibious force to trap him on this on this island where he had made his first camp that he got his own he got he got his own ship and sailed that over the bar right into Pensacola Harbor and he sent a cannonball to the navy commander with a letter attached to it basically daring him to follow him <laughs> or forever shame the navy and the navy captains it, it, it worked a treat because the navy captains were so offended by this that they all basically said, well, for the honor of the Navy, we now have to follow the madman in. And it turned out he was right. The British guns were sighted too high and the, and they could all get over the bar. And for this reason, the Galvez later uh, got permission to put as his motto on his coat of arms, Yo solo, I alone. It probably had nothing to do with him at any point referring to the Navy as water taxis. Uh, <laughs> but this campaign must have been a logistical nightmare, though, to get from New Orleans to Florida. It was, yeah. Um, the way that the Spanish, uh, sort of Spanish colonies and empire was set up was a challenge for anybody who was governor of Louisiana. Louisiana was not, because Louisiana was not self-sufficient, really. It depended on supplies from Cuba and Mexico to sustain it, pretty much. The only thing that people thought that New Orleans was good for was the indigo crop and for as a base for the fair trade, pretty much. And so if you're governor of Louisiana and you have to plan a shoestring campaign, it's a nightmare, pretty much. And that's why it, Galvez was helped enormously by the fact that he had very powerful family, friends, and knew a lot of the high-ups or had worked with them or had served under them, and they knew he was a solid guy. And uh, like I say, for the for the Baton Rouge expedition, that one could have gone tremendously wrong because they lost so much material in the hurricane. But his successes drove more political support his way pretty much because he won at because uh, he won in 1779 the governor of cuba was pretty much forced to give him more reinforcements and more supplies um the governor of mexico it should be said was very helpful as well and had uh sent large heads of cattle up to new orleans already and uh sent a lot of a lot of equipment out to cuba and that in itself um, is an example of how confusing it is because Cuba had to requisition supplies to feed most of the Caribbean and supply most of the Caribbean. They also needed the money from Mexico. Most of, most of everything came from Mexico. Uh, so, ship, so if you imagine a triangle sort of from Veracruz to Cuba and then the point is Louisiana, you can kind of see the relationship there that things come from mexico to cuba and louisiana and from cuba to louisiana as well um and so that's this that's the logistical nightmare you're dealing with here pretty much and luckily british ships were elsewhere much to general campbell's chagrin um otherwise it could have been disastrous pretty much running a campaign that way yeah, just a little bit. Um, the most <laughs> famous engagement of the war is the naval blockade and attacks on Gibraltar. How successful was it? Not successful at all. <laughs> it was a complete disaster. <laughs> when you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The naval historian in the room is laughing his head off. <laughs> that was a complete disaster. Uh... <laughs> Your thoughts on this, Chris? <laughs> um, well, 
yeah, didn't go well. Not very well at all. <laughs> but it is <laughs> an understatement. I mean, you could again, you could do a whole episode on the on the on the in quotes great siege of Gibraltar because it lasted for the entire length of the Spanish involvement in this war from 1779 to 83. Um, and it's it's just. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, well, that's the thing, isn't it? I, I, I'm not going to get into 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 the sovereignty of Gibraltar here because I don't want us to get cancelled. Uh, but then, and to an extent now, the fact is that you know Gibraltar is just a giant embarrassment to Spain. You know, especially then when it was just over fifty years in under the control of the British. Back then. It was just a continual slap in the face and salt in, in, a wo- in an open wound because not only did the British have this chunk of what is very definitely part of Spain, part of the I- Iberian Peninsula, but they had just a tiny little bit, but they also had were making it a, like a massive naval base from which they were controlling and could control and project power onto the trade of the entire Mediterranean. And the fact that they could do this from what is very obviously Iberian soil <laughs> is just the, just the, the most appalling embarrassment to the Spanish Empire. That they're essentially being, I don't know, that they're essentially being like cuckolded in their own house. <laughs> and so they want, they re, this was the main war aim. Gibraltar was always the main war aim. And you can see that by the amount of troops and ships and money that they put into trying to take it back. By the end of the siege, you're dealing with 60,000 men involved in trying to take the place. And innovations like floating batteries to try and get into the get in close to the harbour. And just const- basically the constant blockade for over three years to to try and to try and get it back with this is obviously with french help as well there was even a clause in the treaty that the spanish made with the french and we need to be clear here the spanish did not make a treaty with the americans they were not technically allied to the americans they supposedly remained neutral to the americans they were allied with the french um who were allied to the americans uh and there was a clause in the Franco-Spanish um, treaty that they would not make peace until they had either taken Gibraltar or agreed what to do with it. Uh, so that in itself tells you how important it was to them. But they just failed utterly to take it. I think the biggest problem, that the, the biggest reason for that is that everybody forgot that in 1704, when the British took the place, they took it from the sea. And the Spanish proved incapable of ceasing Massive British convoys just sailing in there and resupplying the place. Three huge convoys got into Gibraltar and the Spanish Navy were just powerless to stop it practically. And when they actually tried to assault it, it it was just a massive fiasco from the landward side. Um, So this was a major problem to the overall war aims of Spain and, and France. Um, it became very important politically because by 17, by the end of the, by like 1782, uh, you're talking, you're looking at the Peace of Paris and things like that going on. And they, all the negotiators in Paris talking about how to end the war were always had half an eye on what was going on in Gibraltar in case the Spanish happened to take it before they could get the paper, the, the ink on the paper. And they didn't. So, that was a major, major boost to to Britain, who were, who were losing America, that they could hold on to Gibraltar. And I, I think there must have been some sort of sort, sort of pivot, almost uh, after a certain point, that basically we're losing. We're probably going to lose a lot of America, guys, by 1779. Probably, <laughs> I think somebody said must have thought this at least. But we have to hold Gibraltar. We can't lose that too. Um, so the fact that Spain couldn't take it back was a major problem in terms of getting 
treaty concessions out of the British. And although they did win territory back in North America, they didn't win it back where it counted really. They want they needed to have taken Gibraltar and Jamaica, but they but the war ended by the time our friend de Galvez was planning to attack Jamaica and nobody was getting into Gibraltar for some reason. Uh, so Britain saved Gibraltar, but it could also be said that in doing so they lost America because on the other side of the coin, although it tied up a lot of Spanish and French resources to attack it, it was also doing the same thing from the British side. They did have to send these convoys through. They did have to keep a large garrison in there. The Navy which could have been the ships that were defending Gibraltar could have decisively acted in North American waters to save Cornwallis at Yorktown for all we know. Uh, But they were busy defending Gibraltar. So it's a massively important thing. And to be honest, it's the main thing that people talk about when they talk about the Spanish and the American revolution, the siege of Gibraltar. And I wonder why that is. Oh, it's because they lost I mean, would it, be, would it be fair then to say that the entry of Spain and France, as well as Holland, well, let's not forget Holland, the Anglo-Fourth mm-hmm. Anglo-Dutch War, turn what should just be a purely British internal imperial problem into a world war? Suddenly Britain, like you said, you've got to, look, you've got to worry about the Caribbean, you've got to worry about India to a certain extent, you've got to worry about uh, blockading the Dutch ports, you've got to worry about Menorca, the Caribbean. Suddenly it's exploded everywhere. Uh, I- it's definitely becomes a global war, I think, fought across the globe. Although it, I think we have to be cautious about being too eager to assign, you know, what we think of as a world war to some of these conflicts, because I mean, nothing is nothing's really happening in the majority of Africa. China is not in it. Japan isn't in it. Um, most of Southeast Asia except for the Dutch colonies, obviously. You can, you can get into South... You can get the, 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 the zones into Southeast Asia because of the Dutch colonies there. And, of course, you can get India because of the siege of... Um, I think it's Pondicherry, Pondicherry in 1779, 1780, um, where the French lose control of their, their, their holdouts in India. That's, that's, that's where the British kick the, the French out of India properly, really. So I think you can say, and of course, uh, there was fighting in South America as well. Very little. I, I don't think very much happened in the Pacific, though. Um, There's not much going on there. No. So I think you can argue that it was, it did turn it into, yeah, absolutely, it expanded what was a local rebellion um, to a global crisis, but perhaps not a world war. So, um, the war you get the war finally ending in 1783. What do Spain actually get out of it for, in the peace? Like I said before, they do get some stuff, but they don't get everything they wanted or had hoped to get out of the war. They had spent a lot of time dragging their heels to enter the war at a time that was going to be very uh, positive for them and not really anybody else. They wanted to make sure that if they're going to get involved in this, they had bad memories of the Seven Years' War, um, that they were going to get in when it suited them. Now, they did... They get, their entrance ensured that, I think, that 13 colonies would be able to actually expel the British. And this is because with the Franco-Spanish alliance, and indeed the Dutch, the British could no longer count on retaining small portions of land in, in what was the 13 colonies. There had been hopes that even if they lost several states, they might be able to keep some of the port cities like Charleston or New York or or even Florida, like uh, St. Augustine and uh, Pensacola. But when the Spanish and the French get involved, uh, it's a whole new ballgame. Now Congress can actually contemplate forcing all of the British out because they have this support. And 
the 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 introduction of fresh Spanish gold, large fleets, a very large military presence already in America. Um, their influence is is very dramatic to, you know, the American cause itself indirectly. For the Spanish themselves, obviously, we've talked about they take Florida, and the British are happy really to give it to them in the peace. Uh, they're happy to give up all of the American territory. Well, happy, I should say. <laughs> happy, I should say, with uh, with with qualifications. But it, you know, it, it's almost as if they thought it could have been worse, because by giving a by giving away uh, what was called you know East and West Florida, they get to keep Nassau, which is which was overrun by the Spanish. Uh, shortly after the siege of Pensacola, they obviously obviously retained Gibraltar uh, and Jamaica. And what happens is that although the Spanish gain complete control over the coasts of the of the Gulf of Mexico and most of the navigation of the Mississippi, the fact that the British are no longer in the territorial game after 1783 means that the Spanish actually become more of a threat to the United States than the British do. And in the Peace of Paris in 1783, the groundwork is basically laid to cut out the Spanish and the French from major trade deals that then go on into the the late 18th century. Basically, America and Britain cozy up to each other really fast, and it should be remembered that, that, that the Americans have much more in common with the British than they do with the Spanish and the French. And the Spanish and the French are sort of left going, we did win, right? But now we're like seeing huge, huge financial deficits and massive political problems appearing. And Meanwhile, the British basically pay off the the deficit from the American Revolution by the time of, I think, what, Pitt's second or third term or something like that. And meanwhile, the French just go completely into chaos. And the Spanish, you know, they're not too far behind. It's, they, they, they luckily stay out of it until Napoleon like they, yeah, they stay out of the they stay out of the the real problems until Napoleon comes along. But that does that does paint a kind of a gloomy picture. Uh, uh, in the short term, they absolutely had cause for some celebration. They did they did win pretty big in North America. They were quite happy with the with with that, and they had cause for celebration. Carlos the Third was, you know, it was a good it was a good it was a good bit of propaganda for his for his government for his for his reign to say that we beat the british here uh and it helped further along the the bourbon reforms and things like that but yeah it, it left it but so they 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 got they got certain things they they got they, it was success but qualified it left a bit of a, a sour taste in the mouth which um just turned downright poisonous for the french going forwards and with that why do you think Spain's role in this conflict is so overlooked? Uh, well, I mean, the, the simple thing is that, you, you know, we, we, we all like our sort of founding myths, you know, and the founding myth of the America, the, the United States of America, I should say, because one of the big myths of the United States of America is that the United States of America is America, you know, the Americas are much more than the United States. And that in itself feeds into this reason why this theatre of the war, this, this sort of deep southern theatre of the war, the Gulf Coast theatre, gets overlooked. Because it's not the sort of Anglo-Saxon, Yankee doodle militia sniping at the Redcoats, and overcoming the odds with the help of a few brave Frenchmen and Polish people. Um, it's much more 
confused with the Spanish because the Spanish are not really on the side of the Americans. And if anything, they're rivals with the Americans. And as I, as I pointed out before, de Galvez, for instance, described his army as being of all colors, conditions, and nations or something like that. Uh, His army was drawn from across the Americas. They included a large amount of uh, free black men. This included French French and Spanish Creoles. It included a fair amount of Native American allies. It included uh, Peninsular Spaniards and South American Creoles. And yeah, it was a it was a mad kind of mixture of people that he brought across the Gulf coast of Pensacola. And in that sense, I always feel like that army, which is more or less sidelined, but with a few paragraphs before everybody moves on to the siege of Gibraltar and and the bigger picture, um, that army is much more American in its, in its, in its way, certainly to what we would see as America today than George Washington's army, uh, because it is the Americas fighting rather than just the United States of America. The fact that it just is very hard to fit into the you know 17, the spirit of 1776 story narrative is why people just discounted it because. You, it just it muddies the waters. What a, a, a mostly a Hispanic army marching across and defeating the British and helping America gain its independence. Where, do, where does that fit in with the national myth? And despite the fact that, you know, recently more light has been shed on this, and De Galvez was made an honorary American citizen, and his portrait is in the in the Capitol building. Um there's still a lot of people who will just sort of discount it. But this is an American army that he led into, into Florida. And because it, it came from, as I said, most of it was drawn from American provinces. And that in itself is the most important thing to remember here, that this was, this was definitely part of the American Revolution and should be remembered because, and yeah, should, shouldn't should absolutely not be sidelined just because of the fact that they're not all from Massachusetts and Pennsylvania. Thanks, Josh. That is absolutely amazing. It's um, something I, 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 well, a lot of people don't know that I do dip in and out of the uh, War of Independence, which is the last war that was of any interest before uh, 1899 and the Second World War. Um, nothing else happens as far as I know. So, um, Thanks for uh, bringing Spain to light for everyone. And um, as soon as your book's out, let us know and we'll get you on to talk about Pensacola and uh, try and shift as many copies as we can. Glad to hear it. (laughs) (laughs) In the meantime, you can carry on your collection of cartoons. I can, yay. We're back with with the cartoons. (laughs) Yeah. Are are you nearly enough for a calendar yet? I haven't counted them for a while. We might be a few short. (laughs) (laughs) Then get reading, slacker. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thank you, guys. It's always a pleasure to come back. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.